Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I'm sitting in my basement right now, actually. I've got a desk down here. I just got home. I'm actually, it's uh, 11 a night. I'm supposed to be in the air right now, flying from Portland to Atlanta. But uh, I'm not. I'm home. I'm going to tell you what I've been up to, because I think it'll be interesting to you. But first, I've got to say a couple things. This will tie in, so hang with me here. I've had a weird past maybe four days, and I'll explain in a second, but I've had this one overwhelming thought on my mind, especially today. People who abuse alcohol, people who abuse drugs, people who are addicted and have uh, substance abuse problems, they're real humans. They make us angry. I'm sure many of you listening to this know people like this. When they're part of your lives, they can be toxic. Uh, they can be maddening. They hurt you. You don't understand why. You don't understand why they can't do something different. They often seem oblivious to the pain they are causing others, to the pain they are causing themselves. E even when they try to get help or realize that things need to change, they wind up doing the same thing again. It's such a, a maddening, maddening thing. But these people are human. They matter They're in, a, in a real sense. They should not be discounted. I know many, many people. I know many people who have been in the depths of substance abuse and have come back from that and are clean and sober now today and, and living beautiful lives. I know many people who have gone through this. I'm sure that everybody listening knows somebody who has gone through this. We should never just give up on people. We should never just discount them. I'm going to explain why this matters to me specifically in this instance in a second. But in the most like grotesquely Darwinian way, I think we have to reject the notion that people in the throes of, of some kind of despair would deserve to die even. I'm trying to suggest here, we can't throw these people away. We can't accept that they would be thrown away. And I, I, I can't accept a system that just accepts that as a premise. Let me elaborate a little bit and bring this around to something that I think might make more sense. I was uh, approached a couple weeks ago by an attorney out in the Portland, Oregon area. He has a client, or had until today, I guess. He had a client who his wife was struck and killed by a vehicle when she was crossing a street. Uh, she had a blood alcohol level, twice the, the legal limit of what you would have if you were driving. Now, she was not driving. She was not driving. So, I mean, there's no, there's no blood alcohol limit for existing. But she had been drinking. She had a, a high blood alcohol level. She was darting across the street and was struck by a vehicle and was killed. And he could not find an engineer in Oregon who was willing to basically be on the husband's side of a case that was being brought against the Oregon Department of Transportation. Would I do it? The comment he made to me is that all these engineers work with the DOT. They don't want to be the one that goes up against them. I can't find anyone here to do it. Would you, would you be willing to do it? This is basically like the information that I had. 
And I will admit, you know, right off the bat, my first impression was, if she was drunk and wandered out into the street, what's your argument here? What are you trying to contend? He got back to me and said, you know, we think that there's circumstances here. From a design standpoint, from an engineering standpoint, I need someone to look at it. I need someone to tell me. I need someone to uh, basically be willing to speak on, on our behalf. And so I said, I'll send me uh, the address. I'm going to look at this on Google. Let me see. And he sent it to me. And I looked at it. <laughs> I said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. So I got in touch with him. I said I would do it. He, he sent me the file. So I uh, shared a, a Dropbox folder with me with all the information. And I was scheduled to uh, appear today as an expert witness on behalf of the husband whose wife was, was killed. I've spent the last few days preparing for this. So I spent the weekend, Super Bowl weekend, pouring through things. I got up on Monday and kind of poured through things a while longer. Took a flight on Tuesday out to um, out to Portland. Uh, went out to the site and did some field work, which I'll talk about here in, in a minute. Basically finished up what my testimony would be, kind of an outline, and, and then uh, went to bed, fully anticipating that I'd be in court this morning. It didn't work out that way. I'm going to tell you what happened, but but let me explain to you why I, I said I would do this. So I went out to the site, and I think that's the best way. I mean, I looked at it on Google Maps. It was a disaster. But when I went out there in person, you really get a sense of, of what's going on. There was a, a strode, basically, the street road hybrid, just a nasty... It's called the TV Highway. I don't, I don't even remember what the TV stand for, but it's, it stands for something. TV Highway. It's a highway through the middle of the city, Hillsboro, outside of Portland. It's a Portland suburb, basically. I just was in a bad mood. The whole place kind of ticked me off because it was just strode after strode after strode. And, and some of it was like the new strodes, you know, yeah. uh, the complete street strode. Uh -huh. But this one was not. This one was the old, the old strode. So you got 100 feet of asphalt from side to side. You had two driving lanes in each direction. They were 12 feet wide, so high, highway-scaled lanes. You had a center turn lane uh, that was like 16 feet wide. And then on both sides, there's uh, they actually have, it's kind of silly. In the original plans, this wasn't there, but it was there when I was there. There's a bike lane on the side, like a five-foot little dinky bike lane, basically a couple feet from cars going 50-plus miles an hour. Um, there are these bike lanes and then turn lanes. So at this crossing, you've got 100 feet of, of asphalt. So think of it as a, like a T intersection. The, the street comes and there's a T intersection. On both sides of this T intersection, there is a bus stop. So picture a little post with a like a little number on the top. I can't, I can't remember exactly, like a little triangle thing that said bus stop or whatever. And then it had a little thing on this post that had a schedule. And then just a old kind of rundown bench and maybe a 15 by 5 feet of, of concrete, like a little concrete pad that you'd stand on there on the, on the edge of this nasty road. That was the bus stop. And there was one on the south side and there was one on the north side. No crosswalk, no signage, 
No lighting, no illumination, nothing. Just a bus stop on each side of the road. On the north side of the road, the road with the the street that came in and T intersected, uh, there's a housing subdivision. There was a convenience store. On the south side, there's a railroad tracks and then, you know, like a commercial area. So there's like a movie theater back there and a couple restaurants and some office buildings and that kind of stuff. <sighs> the first thing I did is I went out during the, the middle of the day. You know, there's people walking. When you stand there, you can look up and down the strode and you can see it's 1,500 feet in one direction. So over a quarter mile in one direction and then almost 2,000 feet. So... Um, basically like a third of a mile, the other direction, a little more than a third of a mile, like 40% of a mile, four tenths of a mile in the other direction. There's a, there's a traffic signal. There's no sidewalk in the one direction, in the short direction, the longer direction, there's a, there's a sidewalk that runs through there. Ah, there might've been a sidewalk in the short direction. The sidewalks were all crumbled up and nasty, overgrown with weeds. I think there was one in that short direction, but it was right adjacent to the roadway. So it was like... I don't even think it was four feet wide. I mean, maybe even like three feet wide. It was one of those single file sidewalks right on the edge, like the afterthought kind of thing right on the edge of the uh, the strode. You know, again, feet away from cars that would be going 50 miles per hour plus. This is the in- environment. I-, I was out there. I saw people walking through this. I saw people cross this. I took notes. I actually did my own speed study. You know, I sat there with a radar gun and wrote down the speeds that people were driving. It was marked at 45 miles an hour. The uh, 85th percentile speed was over 50 miles an hour. The design speed, who knows? I mean, you, you could easily have gone over 60 miles an hour. The, the woman driving the vehicle who hit the woman who was killed, that vehicle is going 62 miles an hour, which, by the way, I did not know this. Maybe some of you do uh, know this. I I did not know this. Um, Part of the attorney's file that I received contained a report from an airbag manufacturer. And the airbag manufacturer had like instantaneous, like millisecond readings on how fast the car was driving in the moments before the airbag was activated. The woman who was driving the vehicle, she hit the woman after she hit the woman, she pulled into the uh, the center turn lane, called the police right away, did not leave the scene, called the police. The details were kind of fuzzy on like what her interaction with the woman was. But I mean, I saw the, I, I wish I could unsee. Part of the file that got sent me was the uh, the scene, the photos from the scene with the the woman there. Uh, I wish I could unsee them. I, I'm, I'm, this is a traumatic thing. I'm guessing that it was pretty obvious she was deceased. And so I'm, 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 I'm not faulting the woman for whatever her reaction was, the, the driver, let's say. But the police got there. She didn't speak English. They had someone who spoke Spanish. This is just the record. I'm not making a big deal out of that. She said she was driving 35 to 40 miles an hour. And the officer said, this is a quote from the, uh, the police report, the officer said, well, the speed limit's 45. And she said, well, I was, I was driving 45. I was driving the speed limit. Um, when they got the airbag test, she was going 62. When she hit the woman, she had decelerated, I want to say, to 55. So she hit this woman at 55 miles an hour. Um, that came from the airbag report. 
a word of advice if you ever do get in a traffic incident. First of all, don't speed on strodes, as tempting as it might be. Do what you can to not. Second of all, if you do wind up in a collision, don't lie about how fast you were going. Let me put it this way. I think it's better to be unsure than to lie, okay? Um, so given those two options, be unsure, don't lie, because uh, they're going to pull your airbag thing and they're going to know. Um, they're going to know how fast you're going. This one's going 62. Uh, what I was being asked to do, I was happy to do. I, I, I wanted to do this. I, I was not trying to, uh, to get the woman who actually was the driver in trouble. I actually think in many ways she is a victim as well in this. M many of you may disagree with that. Many of you may disagree that the, the woman who got struck is a victim. I can't tell you how many times I have heard in the last few days, and this is why I started this podcast in this way, you know, she'd been drinking, Chuck. Like, you know, what, 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 what's the defense? You know, she's got to take responsibility for her actions. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's kind of taking responsibility, right? She's deceased. I'm going to come back to that. My deal was not to make the driver pay for this. My deal was to, to talk about the design, to talk about what had been done and, and what could have been done. I put together 13 pages of notes here that I actually gave the attorney um, with questions to ask me to, to walk through. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through a few of these because this was incredibly frustrating for me to go through this file and to read the stuff that I read and to see the stuff that I saw and to go to this site and to realize that a woman is dead right now for no good reason, for no good reason whatsoever. So I, I described the scene. It's a strode. It's nasty. You got cars, you know, driving ridiculously fast through this area. Uh, you've got a huge amount of crossing that you've got to, to go across. This is just a, a bad, bad, a bad, bad area, right? There's people all over. I mean, I saw people there. I saw people crossing. I saw people walking on the sidewalks. You could go on either side and you can see on the side with the railroad tracks uh, where people were, you know, walking through the, basically across the ditch, uh, across the tracks through this like cut in the hedge and then, you know, footprints all over the places. People do this all the time. I want to say this right because I don't want people to take this the wrong way. If you stood out there and looked at this, there is nobody who would choose to ride the bus in this space. If you could drive, you would. To say this was a disrespectful design of this bus stop is an, is an understatement. The people who are using this particular bus stop are incredibly marginalized and have no other alternative. They're either not allowed to drive, they are incapable of driving, they don't have a car for whatever. No one would choose this bus stop as like a, a lifestyle choice. Maybe somebody does, and I didn't run across them. Maybe somebody is a huge bus advocate, and this is what they do. I would find that to be crazy. I don't see it. I, I don't see it. And I didn't see it in the faces of any of the people that I came across there. So one of the things I was subjected to in this process were a whole bunch of plans that the DOT had put together. One of them was back in 2007. 2007, they had this thing called the Pedestrian Safety Plan. So this is a decade. This woman was hit last March. So a full decade before this you know, woman was killed. They have this pedestrian plan, safety plan they put together uh, you know, for the, the state, for the DOT. And looking at this specific section, right, this specific highway, 
here's a part. People are common along the roadway. They tend to cluster at more densely developed intersections. Observations identified parents with children in strollers, older citizens, school-age kids, wheelchair users, bike riders. Transit stops line both sides of the highway, creating a need to cross the highway. This is all like in their, in their safety plan. They go through and they discuss traffic characteristics. They had average daily traffic volumes in 2006 range from 34,000 to 42,000. Uh, vehicles on the roadway include automobiles, delivery trucks, freight trucks, construction, school buses. Uh, the quarter experiences heavier westbound volumes in the morning, heavier eastbound volumes in the evening. Uh, volumes platoon at signalized intersections, but because of the spacing between intersections, a steady stream of traffic is present during most of the day. As a result, there are few breaks for pedestrian crossings at unsignalized intersections. This is, this is in their plans over a decade ago. They have identified this problem. They have clearly, you know, said like, this is a problem. I actually did some calculations on the break that you would need to cross this hundred feet of asphalt, this hundred feet of pavement to safely cross it. So to cross it without having to avoid a vehicle. So in other words, if you were to start on one side and just walk at like a normal walking pace across, so you don't have to run, you don't have to hustle, you don't have to stop and, and you know, sit in, in a lane somewhere and let cars go by while you go. In order for that to happen, you would have to have 1,500 feet of space because of the speeds, the speeds of the cars that are going. You would have to have 1,500 feet on each side of this without vehicles at any one time. In other words, both traffic signals <laughs> over a quarter mile away in each direction, you would have to have the car stopped and then stop there for like 45 seconds in order for you to be able to get across without having to dodge traffic. That was insane. It would never happen. I walked across this and I had to dodge traffic and I'm a 44-year-old healthy you know, guy. The state knew this. They understood. They wrote plans about this. I'm going to keep going in some of this. Uh, they've got, you know, the crash reports through here. Oh, here. Um, uh, pedestrians' uh, accidents are summarized in this exhibit. The majority of these accidents involved pedestrians crossing the street at unsignalized intersections and occurred near bus stop locations. Over half of them occurred at night. Although there's ambient light from adjacent development and overhead lights at some intersections, most of the unsignalized intersections and mid-block stops don't have street lighting and appear darker, especially along the south side of the roadway where ambient lighting is generally not present. I was here at night. The woman was killed on the south side of the roadway. There is no light. It is just a dark, dark patch of nothing. If you were to cross here, uh, you are going to be crossing, essentially like stepping out of the darkness into a dark strode, you know, right from the bus stop. One bus stop on one side of the street, the other bus stop on the other. On the other side of the street, the north side, there's a little bit of light because the, you know, the residential development, this uh, convenience store, some of the light like spills out from that, but not really. But the other side of the street is pitch black. It's pitch black. What I quoted from you is from 2007, a decade ago, a decade ago. I went on and did my own speed study. I mentioned this earlier. I, I did it at one o'clock in the afternoon. I did it again in the evening at eight o'clock at night. Eight o'clock at night is when the woman was struck and killed. So I wanted to be out there at that time of night to look at the scene and, and be part of it. The speed limit that's posted is 45 miles an hour. During the day, two out of three cars went over 45 miles an hour. 
I calculated the 85th percentile speed, which is essentially like the traffic speed at 51 miles an hour in the day, 49 miles an hour at night. There were cars that exceeded 70 miles an hour during the daytime, over 60 miles an hour in the evening. So there was this wide kind of disparity of, of vehicle speed, very common in a strode environment. And the reason that is is because there are some people who, regardless of where you set the speed limit, regardless how low you set it, will drive the speed limit. So if you set the speed limit at 10 miles an hour, they would drive 10 miles an hour, even though that's ridiculous. There are some people who would do that. The majority of people, though, are going to drive the speed that they feel comfortable driving, regardless of what you set the speed limit at. And because the lanes are wide, because there's a wide clear zone, you know, because basically this is a huge highway, a lot of people feel comfortable driving very fast. And so you saw people driving over 70. I also uh, clocked some people driving at 34 miles an hour, as low, I think 34 was the lowest rating I got. So you have just this inherently dangerous environment where you have people driving fast, people driving slow, things are dark, they're nasty, people, you know, walking out into the street trying to cross, not enough gaps, you know, in the traffic flow to actually get across safely. So you've got to dodge cars at some point, no lighting, no crosswalk, bus stop on both sides. That's what you're looking at. Part of the argument was that there's no crosswalk here and the attorney for I guess my side, or the, the guy who was going to, you know, was trying to make a big deal for me in our discussions about, you know, well, they should have put a crosswalk in. I mean, I'm looking at it and like, yeah, a crosswalk might have helped, but a crosswalk is like not the, not the, not the core problem here. You know, <laughs> there's so many other things that were the deal. I mean, a crosswalk, a crosswalk, I, I think I could argue, and I think the people on the other side for the DOT were arguing that a crosswalk would make it more dangerous it would. I think it absolutely would. One of the weak arguments, let's say, on our side of the case was that this was the first person killed here. And this is the perverse thing about DOTs and the way they do what's called a warrant. A warrant is some type of improvement warranted at this spot. You know, should we have flashers in a pedestrian crossing? Should we have a full signalized intersection? Should we have a crosswalk? There's a, a certain process that they will go through at times to say, you know, it's met this warrant. And so now we can justify doing it here. And there's, there's some logic to that. You don't want these things to be random. Uh, you want some methodology here. But the problem with it is like the main warrant is, are people getting killed? Let me let me put it this way, and this is a, I wasn't going to explain this in court because it's a you know it's a jury trial. And it's a really difficult concept to grasp, and I, I think people would think you're crazy, maybe in a way. Although on cross examination, I would not have hesitated to get into this. It wasn't part of what I put together. Right now, this design suppresses people who walk. There are fewer people who walk today because of how nasty the design is. And because of the low number of people who walk, the low number of people who cross this, the low number of people who are taking the bus or doing whatever, because of that low number of people, basically any crashes are just going to be like random events. They're statistically insignificant. In in other words, most of what we use as warrants uh, when it comes to people getting killed and dying are just statistical anomalies. It's really hard for people to get that though, right? If you look at an intersection and no one's ever been killed, and then you go out and you put a crosswalk in and all of a sudden like three people are killed, 
you're like, oh my gosh, this crosswalk is causing all kinds of death. No, maybe the crosswalk just allowed like way more people to actually feel like they could cross here. And now statistically, you're more likely to have a, a crash because you still have the same nasty strode. There's just more people there now. It actually is maybe a little bit safer in a sense, but now there's going to be more people here. This is, this is the things with statistics that you can do that make these, this whole warrant process just ridiculous. But basically, the core of the argument was, you know, or the, the weak part of perception from our side uh, was that because there hadn't been crashes here in the past, um, this is the first one, it's hard to go and say that this is like a design problem. No, no. No, the DOT had made this such a nasty, horrible intersection that the only people that were ever going to be here were people who had no other choice, people who had no other choice. Let me go back to how I started this with the woman who was intoxicated. Part of this case, and this is the part that was so hard, um, you know, I got, I got all the police reports and, and I don't know why these were part of the file. I don't know why this is important. I'm not giving you the woman's name because I, I don't think it's important. And I love all the people in this audience that I've met. I think you all seem like decent people, but they've got like three kids that she left behind. I don't want anybody to bother them, you know, for any reason. But I got all the police reports, all the incidents, not just of this collision where she was killed, but many, many prior years of interactions with the police. And it was very clear that this was a woman who was, in many ways, a broken woman, a deeply flawed person who, who struggled with a lot of demons. The way I opened the show, right, like really struggled with things, substance addiction, alcohol, illicit drugs, the whole, the whole range of things. Hurt a lot of people and, um, you know, made it create a lot of suffering in the world for herself and, and, and for others. And I got, I had to go through all this. I had to read it all. I had to see it all in a way that, um, you never really want to have to, to do. And I'm sure that, you know, she and, and her husband and her kids wouldn't never want to have to think about, but also, you know, never think of that, like random people are going to be reading this stuff about their lives, deep, intimate details that, that were uh, tragic. As I'm standing out there looking at this intersection, I'm thinking the 880 stuff, right? I'm thinking about, you know, Penalosa and his uh, design for people who are eight, design for people who are 80. And I'm thinking about this and I'm looking like that, like I buy into that. I, I buy into that concept. The idea that if it is safe for someone who is age eight, if it's safe for someone who's age 80, it's gonna be safe for everybody. If an eight-year-old can go out there, the reason why an eight-year-old is great is because eight-year-olds are just like cognitive enough to make decisions, but not really mature enough to make like well thought out decisions, right? And I say that having a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old, beautiful kids, uh, I trust them implicitly, but they make dumb decisions sometimes, right? That's what you do when you're an eight-year-old. That's what you do when you're a kid. You make dumb decisions. Age 80 means basically, I don't mean this in a negative way towards anyone in individually, but at age 80, the idea of designing for someone who's age 80 is you're, you're designing for someone who is a little bit impaired physically, right? Like not at the top of their uh, physical form. As you age, not only do you tend to move a little slower at age 44, I can tell that already, 
um, your vision tends to get a little worse, right? I'm not saying that to despair elderly people, but that is the case. Uh, studies have shown that the older you get, the harder you have judging gaps. So uh, one of the most difficult things to do when you're driving is to do a left-handed turn across traffic because a left-handed turn across traffic requires you to judge not only the speed that you are able to accelerate at, but also the distance between you and an oncoming vehicle and how much time you would have. So essentially judge that gap. The older you get, the worse you become at that. And so the idea of designing something for age eight and age 80 is that you would deal with this broad range of essentially um, shortcomings in the public realm where you expect people to be walking. Here's the leap that I, I make. And this is a leap, I will admit, that comes from my heart more than my engineering acumen. But I think like someone who has been drinking, someone who is, let's just say, someone who is drunk, right? would fit into that age 880 range. A 34-year-old inebriated woman, if this were designed to be safe for someone age eight and someone age 80 and everybody in between, that would include in that broad design someone who was, you know, 34 years old and inebriated. It would. This woman would be alive today is what I'm saying. We don't design for age eight. We don't design for age 80. We don't design for the inebriated woman. And I, I think... The nuance that I'm hung up on, because I got this so many times over the last few days, was, well, this is her fault. She was drinking. She did this to herself. This was like the, the ultimate destination for the disease that afflicted her. And I just reject that. I just don't accept it. If, a, if an eight-year-old kid went out here and got killed, we wouldn't say it's their fault. If an 80-year-old was trying to cross the street and was run down, we, we wouldn't say it was their fault. We shouldn't say that with a 34-year-old woman. In, in any circumstances. And I think back to, you know, my friend Ben Hamilton Bailey and his intersection design and, and the notion, you know, from Hans Monderman, where basically you walk blindfold across the intersection and it's safe. You, you walk backwards into traffic and it's safe. That, that's safe. That's safe. How could that have been done here? I looked at this and I struggled with that. Like, okay, you know, further towards the end of my memo, I asked the attorney, I wrote to the attorney to ask me, ask me this question, like, what should be, what, what should have been done here? And, and the thing is, is like, part of the, uh, the DOT's argument, at least in their depositions, uh, was that, you know, they have to make judgment calls. They have a limited amount of funds. They have to make judgment calls and decide what to do. I almost just swore right there. I'm, I'm really angry about this. So forget the fact that they're out spending billions of dollars on ridiculous stuff all over the place. Let's just take them at their word that they're broke. They don't have any money, which they are. They're broke. They don't have any money. What would it have taken to actually make this safe where you could walk across this intersection blindfolded, where you could be eight years old or 80 years old or inebriated and not get killed? What would that have taken? Well, it would have taken a little bit of lighting. I mean, that, that's like the one thing I would do. There's poles all over the place. I mean, this is just a disgusting old strode. So there's like the really junky looking wooden poles with electric, you know, run. It's just like nobody cares. So they just like run up and down there. Just go out, tap an electrical thing into the wires, throw up a $200 little, you know, light that comes out on a little post and stick it on there. I mean, it would have taken nothing, really nothing to do this. 
And he would have lit up that thing and you could have seen someone standing on the side. You could have seen when they stepped out. You would have seen somebody. You would have been, they would have been seen. Here's the second thing that I would do. <laughs> I would put up a sign. It was crazy because in the depositions, they talked about sign clutter. Oh, we can't put up signs because there'd be sign clutter. We got to follow the, the MUT CD, the, the Manual and Uniform Traffic Control Devices. Uh, and it tells us what to do because we can't have sign clutter. I went up and down this whole thing. There's a sign anywhere. There's no sign clutter. There's a 45 mile an hour speed limit sign, like a little over a quarter mile away. There's nothing else. Nothing. Nothing. They don't have a sign that says a bus stop is up here. Look out for pedestrian crossing. They have anything like it. Nothing. You could go back in like the junkyard of signs you've got at the old DOT office Get the one for deer crossing and just go hang that up there or, you know, cross off deer and write person or like stick a little decal over the deer that looks like a person. It's just disgusting. Like no money at all. I looked, they've been striping this thing. So they've been out there striping this. You got a mid block crossing. There's no way someone's going to walk quarter mile to the light. They know this. It's, they wrote it in their own stupid report. Like no one's going to ever walk this distance. So they know it. They like acknowledge it in their own report. To me, you're out striping. What do you do? You go back that quarter mile and you start tapering down so that when you get to this 200 feet of crossing, you don't have 12 foot wide lanes. You got 10 foot wide lanes. In other words, you just taper those lines in slow the traffic down, give people a little bit less room left and right, side to side to work. You still got the space. It's got a hundred feet to cross. So you still got all the space. It's not like people are going to start going off the road and crashing. It's not like, no, no, you just taper it in a little bit, give them a 10 foot lane, leave the rest of that space out on the side. That would cue people to drive slower for this little section here. Then when you get through the section, taper it back out, let people go fast again. You got a mid-block crossing. Just do it. The next time you're out there with the paint, just do it. Do it. It doesn't cost you a damn bit more to do a narrow lane than it does a wide lane for this stretch. Just do it. Why can't you do it? We all know why you can't do it, right? You can't do it because nobody, nobody cares. Nobody cares. They care enough to write reports. They write reports all day. I, I, got, I got another one here. Their uh, ODOT design manual. This was the best. This was from 2012, so five years before the woman was killed. It says crosswalk and ramp placement. Here's what the ODOT design, highway design manual says about crosswalk placement. Quote, in most instances, the best design will be arrived at through an iterative process. Imagining the natural path a pedestrian will take while anticipating the various vehicle turning movements that may conflict with the pedestrian will help a designer reach optimal visibility of pedestrians and reasonable crossing distance. Examining driver and pedestrian expectations where pedestrian vehicle conflicts may occur will help a designer better accommodate pedestrian crossings. In other words, get your butt out there and look at it. Get your butt out there and actually walk it. Actually do the crossing yourself. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine the natural path a pedestrian will take. I mean, you've got a bus stop on one side and a bus stop on the other side. Let me imagine here what path a pedestrian will take to get from one to the other. Let me like stretch my brain and try to figure that one out, right? Is that so hard? No. Why didn't anyone do this? Because nobody cared. Nobody cared at all. Nobody cared. 
Here's a section on street crossings. This is from their design manual. Okay, so this talks about street crossings. Most pedestrian crashes occur when a pedestrian crosses a road, often at locations other than controlled intersections. Mid-block and uncontrolled intersection crossings need to be considered, as people will take the shortest route to their destination. Prohibiting such movements is counterproductive if pedestrians cross the road with no protection. It's better to design highways that enable pedestrians to cross safely. Yeah, yeah, it is. These people can write manuals, they can write plans, they can do all this. They're not putting it into effect. They're not putting it into effect. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because nobody really cares. People care about writing the plan, right? Here's a lighting and policy guidelines from 2003, 14 years before this is done. Here we go. ODOT does not use specific lighting warrants to determine whether lighting is to be provided on a project. The decision to stall light in lighting on a project is made after an investigation is conducted. ODOT uses engineering judgment of local conditions, considering such factors as traffic and crash data, roadway characteristics, availability of funds to support installation decisions. So basically, like, we'll wait till someone's killed. By the way, someone's killed here, still no light. Still no light. Here's a safety implementation plan they wrote in 2010. The plan goes through all these problems they're having with fatalities, especially with pedestrians along the highways. Uh, there's all kinds of people getting killed along this highway. They got a, they got a whole plan talking about it. Here's a whole section on uh, new lighting. Here, here it is, quote, crashes that occur during darkness are typically more severe than daylight crashes. Major problems associated with unlit or poorly lit intersections include reduced driver ability to recognize that an intersection is approaching, reduced ability to navigate turning movements properly, and degradation of the ability to recognize other vehicles and pedestrians in or entering the intersection. The low-cost countermeasure for unlit or poorly lit intersections with a high frequency rate of night crashes is lighting. <laughs> no doubt, right? I was just going to curse again. This, this makes me really angry. Really angry. Because we're really good at writing plans. We're really good at studying things. They've got more than a decade of studying things. Nobody did anything. Nobody did anything. Why didn't they do anything? Because nobody cared. Nobody cares. And I, th I think the thing that is just rubbing me the wrong way, we're progressive people, right? We're, we're out there doing this plan. We got this study. We got that study. For the cost of these studies, they could have fixed this whole, they could have fixed this thing, you know, a hundred times over. Stop studying stuff. Get out there and do something. Just drive me, drive me crazy. Drive me totally crazy. I'm kind of at the end of my notes here. There's a couple other studies. There's a TV highway corridor plan, the corridor plan you know, even despite all these other things they're going to do, the corridor plan shows them basically putting everything in this section right back the way it is today. No tapering of the lanes, no lighting, no uh, signage, nothing, nothing, nothing. So you do all these studies, you do all these things, you do all this hand wringing, all these recommendations. And then when it comes right down to it, nothing is done. Nothing is done. Nothing's done. So why am I home tonight? Why are I still there? So I got up today, you know, it's hard sleeping last night. This is the third time I've done an expert witness thing. The other two were not uh, pedestrian collision related. They were, one was an annexation thing. Well, the other one was uh, 
this other one was ridiculous. Uh, it involved an electric utility dispute with the city and growth projections. It was just dumb. That one settled uh, before I went to trial, but I was deposed and, and all that. And I, I think my deposition helped get a settlement. Um, but uh, anyway, um, this is the third time I've done this. And, and let me just tell you that being an expert witness is, is nerve wracking. It's not fun. And, you know, for me, I take this very seriously. I'm very, like, conscientious about it. I uh, don't sleep at night. Spend all this time, like, thinking about things. How am I going to answer this? What's the right way to say this? I met with the attorney the night before, and they had gotten a ruling from the judge. They told me the, uh, the technical term, the lawyer term, um, something about the ultimate repose, the statement of ultimate repose. I can't, I can't remember what it was. It comes from a uh, product liability law. So if you put out a product and it's been like more than a decade and there've been no like defects with it, you've got some kind of immunity. The argument here was that this highway was built more than 10 years ago. They haven't gone out and changed it in any significant way. And so therefore they should have immunity on it. Uh, for its defects, you know, any defects that you'd find, they should have immunity because, you know, uh, it's more than 10 years old. This seemed like an insane argument to me. The judge granted it to the state. So basically, last night, I was informed at like 7.30 that a huge part, maybe like 25% of what I had put together, we weren't going to be able to use. We we're going to be able to talk about anything about the design. The design was considered okay, de facto, just fine, no problem with it. And I wasn't able to discuss that in any way or else they'd be ejected to and, and it could be thrown out. <laughs> okay. I, you know, legal trick, legal argument, fine. How can we state these things? Not as design, but as essentially like maintenance or the characteristics of the roadway. This is what I like spent all last night sitting in bed, not able to sleep, going through every like question that I was going to be asked, thinking, how can I state this in this way so that it doesn't get objected to and, and ruled out of order by the judge? By the way, there were also an argument that I should not be allowed to testify because I was not an engineer licensed in the state of Oregon. I started this podcast by explaining how, you know, basically they couldn't find an engineer in the state of Oregon because all of them. Uh, have some relationship with the DOT or have a, you know, belong to an organization that has a relationship with the DOT. And none of them wanted to go up against the DOT uh, for fear of, you know, losing future work. That never got ruled on. And it never got ruled on because they settled the case. Now, when I, they first contacted me, I said, what outcome are you looking for here? Are you trying to get a settlement? And the answer was no, no, we're not trying to get a settlement. The husband wants, I'm, I'm going to use this term. I don't think this is a term they use, but essentially like an admission of guilt, you know, a statement of liability in a sense, like, you know, the state is liable. My understanding is, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know, but I think they said that there was an offer made and they turned it down because they wanted this. That was the impression that I had. And so the impression I have is that they, you know, they're going to take this trial. Like they want to win. They want to get this done. They weren't going to settle. And so part of my agreeing to do it was, was based on that understanding. And I settled. But they didn't settle in the way that you'd think. After the first day of the trial, uh, this was a jury trial, they had these rulings on uh, the, the design issue, the maintenance issue. 
There were a couple other rulings that they explained to me that didn't go the way that they wanted them to. They had the potential of having me excluded completely. That was a thing that they were going to argue about in the morning when I got there. Um, there were a lot of things up in the air, and I didn't realize this, um, but I, there's probably some sense to this. The state, the DOT, had countersued the plaintiff in this case, the guy that I was representing, the husband of the deceased woman. And uh, the reason they did that is because if they won or if they were found not liable, what they would do is they would ask the judge to award them the damages in terms of their costs. Basically, you know, we weren't liable. We told you from the beginning we weren't liable. This was a frivolous lawsuit. Um, we shouldn't have had to spend this much money to defend ourselves. The, uh, you know, the plaintiff, I'm starting to yawn here because I'm so tired. The plaintiff uh, is responsible for this. So make, make him pay our costs. So here's a man whose wife is dead, who is raising three kids now on his own, and now has, you know, bills from the state to pay the state's attorney's fee. So basically, uh, facing that and the very likely prospect that they were going to lose, um, they settled. They basically all walked away. They all walked away, said, we won't come after you for damages. You don't come after us for fees and we're done. Which is about like the most depressing thing you can, you can have happen. I called up someone on the way back to the airport. I, basically, this happened at like 9 a.m. I was supposed to be there, testify. I had a 10 p.m. flight out of Portland. I was going to fly. I had to get, I got to get back home. So I was going to fly overnight to Atlanta, spend an hour in Atlanta, then fly overnight, get uh, back to Minneapolis, land in Minneapolis at like 9 a.m., drive home, and then be here on Thursday to, uh, to be a dad, but also to to do some work. I'm I'm really behind on things because of this trip, this work I've been doing. I just went to the airport at 9 a.m. and uh, got on a noon flight and and was home here to tuck my kids in tonight. When I was on the way to the airport, I called someone and I, I was talking to them about this case. I, I I just felt bad. I felt I felt disappointed. I felt frustrated. I had, you know, spent so much time. I was ready. I wanted to make this case. I wanted to help. I thought I could help. I thought I could help this guy. I thought I could make a difference. And I didn't get the opportunity. I was frustrated by that. The person I was talking to is a compassionate, kind, you know, person. But the feedback that I got was, there'll be another one. There'll be another case like this. And hopefully then you'll have a more sympathetic victim. And I, I hung up the phone at the end of the conversation and I just, I drove the rest of the way to the airport and I walked through the airport and I got on the plane and I've just been, I've been thinking about that the whole way home. Because this woman to me is a sympathetic victim. She deserved a chance. She deserved a chance to, to get her life back together. She deserved a chance to figure things out. I'm a believer in Darwinian mindset survival of the fittest. I get it. You know, I understand that in a state of nature, sometimes people do harm to themselves and put themselves in situations where they, they don't survive. But that's not what this is, right? This is not like a state of nature. This is a state where we have, we have tilted things so far in one direction that we've created 
the situation where we have decided who will live and who will die. We've decided that people without options are taking their lives in their own hands. And we've decided that uh, they have to live in these not just horrific environments, but, but these just deadly places and these deadly kind of interactions on a routine basis. They were asking me today how they should introduce me. And we went through like my bio and stuff. And uh, they said, you know, are you, can, can we say that you're a pedestrian advocate? And I thought, well, like, no, I'm, I'm not a pedestrian advocate. Like that's not, that's not, I don't get up to advocate for pedestrians. Like that's not what I do. That's not what I do. But I had a hard time like explaining, like what, what am I then? I'm a strong towns advocate. Like what, what, what is that? What does that have to do with this woman getting killed? It's not an easy answer. It's not an easy answer at all. I don't wake up every day as a pedestrian advocate. I didn't do this to advocate for pedestrians, for humans. We have made some horrific trade-offs in pursuit of growth. I think that growth, that pursuit of growth is bankrupting our cities. It's putting us backwards. The more we do it, the poorer we become. And a side effect of this, there's many, many side effects of this. There are environmental side effects. There's social justice side effects. One of the side effects is that we've made places really, really dangerous, really dangerous, particularly for, I think, the people that you would call the most vulnerable in society. We have made it horrifically dangerous. And so I took a few days off and I tried uh, to make things a little bit better here. Um, my hope was that I would be able to help this man, uh, that I'd be help this attorney. And really, quite frankly, my hope was that the DOT would wake up. This would be one of those kind of warning shots where it's like, all right, why aren't we turning our plans into action? Why are we saying these things and then not doing anything? Why aren't we taking obvious little steps to make things better? Steps that we could easily do. Steps that our own plans are calling for us to do. Why don't we get out and do that? And if it's going to cost you a lot of money every time you don't, maybe you'll start doing it. Maybe you'll start doing it. And my hope was to shake things up a little bit and to wake some people up and to make them see that they can do it. They got to do it. They have to do it. There's no choice. <sighs> Didn't get a chance. So I'm home here tonight. I'm frustrated. I feel like I wasted a few days of my life and didn't really make anything any better for anybody. And there's a, a woman out there who is deceased now. I've got the pictures of her laying there in the pavement. Half naked, you know, clothes knocked off of her, um, blood all over her body all over the ground, just horrible images. I, I can't get out of my head. I met her husband now. He's a kind, decent man. We talked for half an hour. He was nervous, you know, today, having to go in. He, he was uh, going to be cross-examined first, and then I was on next. You know, he had some anxiety about that, I could tell. Uh, I didn't meet their kids, but I know they've got three children, They've, uh, they've had traumatic lives. I mean, I, I've seen these police reports. They've, they've got 
traumatic lives and, and now they don't have their mom, you know, even though their mom caused them a lot of grief and a, a lot of, a lot of difficulty, you'd, you'd rather have a mom than not. And uh, none of this is any better. None of this is any better. There's just some days when uh, it feels like, um, you know, you're not making any progress at all. One good thing, I'll close with this, as I was walking away, so I'm, I'm done. I get the news, uh, I'm walking away. Um, this guy comes up to me. And he says, Chuck, uh, you know, are you, uh, are you leaving? Is there any chance we could go get coffee or go have lunch? And I just said, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. He's like, well, I'm, I, you know, I'd, I'd really love a chance to chat with you. I, I don't remember exactly what he said after that. I just remember that, like, he wanted to get coffee and he wanted to chat. Um, gave me his card. He's a, a planner with a DOT, AICP. Um, so he's a certified planner. And uh, the impression that I got is that he knew who I was and liked our work and, and wanted to chat about it. I've been kind of clinging to that today, uh, that, you know, maybe this didn't help. Maybe uh, my efforts here didn't, you know, make anything any better. But maybe the work that we're doing here is. Maybe the work that we're all doing, me, you, all the people listening uh, with us, all the people reading our stuff and, and sharing it and all the people on our Slack, on our Facebook message board, on Twitter, all the conversations that are, that are going on because of, because of this, because of this conversation that we're having now, maybe that will make things better. There's times I want to believe that, right? There's times that are dark and you don't want to believe that and, and you don't see like how that could be possible. But, you know, I got a little bit of hope. I got a little bit of hope. So I'm, uh, I'm going to go to bed. I'm feeling uh, really beat down and, and tired. But let's end with that. Let's end with a little bit of hope because there's a guy there that, that wanted to chat. And if he wants to chat, that might be part of uh, wanting to make things better. And, and let's hope that's the case. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.